the, the issues that I'll discuss are primarily the question of uh, triage decisions to save lives when there is a shortage of life-saving measures, the vaccine issue, both the importance of the vaccine and some aspects of triage of vaccinating, and some halachic issues, although uh, in the book that was just now mentioned, you can find uh, many, many more uh, halachic issues that came up during this year, discussed from halachic sources, from experience, and from discussion with some of the poskim. The book is uh, one side in English, the other side in Hebrew, so you can uh, choose the language that is more convenient for you to, uh, to learn this, uh, these issues. So before going into some of these uh, complex issues, let me just show you some of the uh, pandemic results. The physical health, including mortality and morbidity, is tremendous. In Israel, there are over 5,700 death uh, records and over 780,000 uh, sick people or infected. In the United States, over 510,000 people died and over 28 million people have been infected. And if we look at the world, there are over two and a half million people who died and over 114 million people infected in over 200 countries. But not only the physical health was jeopardized during this uh, pandemic, there's also a lot of uh, emotional issues, people who are confined, who are locked up, who are uh, quarantined, these uh, created a lot of emotional issues. The economy has suffered tremendously in all countries in the world. Education has suffered because schools, yeshivas, Talmudet Torah, all were either closed or partially closed or open and closed uh, during periods, obviously affecting negatively the ability to, to teach and the social aspects as we are doing it now. Usually we meet in conferences, we talk to each other besides listening to the lecture. And now I'm giving almost uh, twice a day uh, Zoom conferences all over the world without moving from my chair at home, which has an advantage that I'm not wasting time flying and, and traveling, but the human contact obviously is lacking. So it is bad, but there are some lessons that can be uh, learned from this uh, pandemic. First of all, it is clear that this pandemic has taught humanity modesty and humility. This miniature new virus that to this point in time, despite the year long of the pandemic, we still are being surprised almost daily what, with what it can do, has uh, put the science world, the doctors, nurses, and, and healthcare providers, as well as healthcare policymakers, 
to feel modest and uh, feel another that really we know very little despite the fact that we are in the 21st century. Interesting to note that the last historic worldwide pandemic, the Spanish influenza pandemic in 1917-18 created a worldwide uh, pandemic And in the leading uh, journal, even then, which is today still existing, the science journal, in 1918, there was an article published summarizing the pandemic of the Spanish influenza. And actually, you could just remove the date and instead of 1918, put 2018 or 2021, and almost identically, you'll find the descriptions then and today. So 100 years did not change much, despite the fact that medicine and science has advanced so much. So virology and this particular viruses are still with us and causing the same damage as they did 100 years ago. For observant Jews, there are two important lessons that we should take with us from this pandemic. One is, the greatness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of the creator of the world, that his presence and strength has been again shown to the whole world. King David in Tehillim says, how great are your uh, works or how manifold are your works. We can paraphrase it and say, how small are your works? The little virus, look what it can do to the world when HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants it to happen for whatever reason he, he finds it to be the cause to do it. Another uh, lesson that I think we should take with us is to engage in serious introspection and repentance, both as individuals and as communities. This vir- virus has caused a higher than the average percentage of illness and death in Haredi and uh, communities both in Israel and in other countries, in the USA, in England, and in other countries. Interestingly to note, unfortunately, that apparently it was the first time in the history of Jewish people that at some point of this pandemic, all institutions of Torah and prayer have been shut down in the entire world. But the Medrash, Shuls, Talmud Torah, Yeshivas were all closed at certain point all over the world. This has never happened because even in the worst historic times, it was bad in one area, but it was okay in another area. Even World War II, which was a terrible uh, situation for Jews, European Jews didn't have these institutions. But at the same time, in the United States, in Australia, in Israel, they were functioning. But this time in history, it really closed all over. And I think this is something to look into. So I think it is really an obligation upon all of us, both individuals and communities collectively, to understand that there is no man so wholly righteous on earth that he's always doing good and never sins. 
the postuk uses the phrase men, Odom, which means every man. It can be the greatest godl or the simplest Jew. Everyone might have had something doing wrong, and this is a time to look into himself and into his community and try to do better. And I think one of the outstanding evils in Jewish societies is the tremendous machloket within all sects and sections of the Jewish communities, and perhaps even more so within and between observant Jewish communities, leads to hatred, to shaming, and to, uh, and to a machloikes that is really disruptive, and it's not L'Shem Shamayim. So hopefully, people will look into it, maybe this or maybe other major issues could be corrected. So we hope and pray that our learning and our discussions will remain from now on just theoretical and will go into the path of peace and repentance. So these are some of the lessons that despite the bad aspects of the pandemic, we can take with us. Now, one of the important messages from the uh, part of... Uh, sorry. Yeah. One of the uh, important messages that I want to relate to is the fact that we need to observe almost religiously the... Uh, directives of the medical authorities and the medical and uh, authorities that put on policies because halachically we are talking about a situation of pikuach nefesh and therefore there's a whole host of requirements of obligations halachically speaking that we should follow directives in order to save our own lives and not less so, and probably more so, to save lives of others that we may infect, and they might be in a greater danger. So we know that when Ishmartem Oden of means that you have to keep whatever is appropriate, medically speaking, in order to save yourself from diseases. If you see someone is uh, doing something that may cause him damage or injury, or he is within the situation, you should help him. There is an issue of voidev. If you are not taking care of yourself and you got infected, you most likely will infect others, some of which might be elderly, might be with background diseases, might be immune suppressed, and by infecting them, you might even kill them, certainly cause them serious disease. And according to the Toysphere, if you cause damage to someone else, is even worse than that you do something wrong to yourself. So therefore, we should heed and keep whatever we are said and told that is appropriate to save ourselves and our friends. Interesting that already in the first half of the 19th century, during the second cholera pandemic, as you may know, there were seven 
bouts of cholera pandemic during the 18th and 17th centuries. And during the second one, the Godel Hador at that time was Obikiba Eger, and there are several letters of him describing his rulings, how to behave in those days during the pandemic. And he stressed that everyone should follow the prescription and directions of what physicians are saying, and one should not violate doctor's orders, even a touch. One must observe every everyone doctor's orders, whatever they ordered in those days. And violating it is considered to have gravely sinned to God. Therefore, uh, he calls upon everyone to follow what doctors are saying. So there are people who think they are smarter than the experts and they know better, or they rely on a small minority of people who think that they are experts or are experts, but are a minority opinion. And that clearly is against halacha. So indeed, most halachic authorities in the Orthodox uh, Jewish population, both in Israel, United States, and England, when they saw the disproportionate amount of infection in Haredi communities and the disproportionate morbidity and mortality, they indeed require that everyone should follow medical experts and health authorities' directives and do whatever is uh, right according to the time when it was initiated, whether it had to do with closing yeshivas, whether it had to do with minyonim outside shul, or even no minyonim, all this during certain waves of the pandemic were ruled by very authoritative rabbis. So now let's start with the first uh, major issue of triaging when there are more patients who need life-saving measures than the measures are available. These are always tragic choices. They are always life and death decisions because if there is a shortage and I decide to treat patient A, it will go on the expense of patient B who will not be able to receive the life-saving measure and he will die. So these are very, very serious and uh, problematic choices to make by physicians. But there are sometimes no other ways other than doing it. And the question is, how do we do it the best way and the right way? So in general, in halacha, there are several rules how to how to determine preferences when there are conflicts in timing or in availability to fulfill all the mitzvahs that are required at the time. So one rule may be whichever is more common comes first. Tadir tadir, tadir kodem. And therefore, every morning, we have to put on talis and put on film. We can't do all of them at once. We have to do it in a certain order. So based on tadir tadir, we first put the talis and then the film because talis we put on every day, including Shabbos and Yontev, and film we are not 
using on Shabbos and Yom Tev, so Talis is more frequently used, more commonly used, and therefore it takes precedence. Another uh, rule is whichever is holier comes first. So if you have uh, to decide between Talis and Tfilin when you, when you don't have sufficient funds to buy both, then the one that is more holy, the Tfilin, takes precedence over the Talis, who is less holy in the, this sphere. Another rule is we escalate in holiness and do not decrease. So if there are two things that we have to decide between them, we should use the, the ones that will increase holiness and not decrease. Another rule is we do not pass over mitzvahs. So if you have a mitzvah before you, you can't pass it and perform the other mitzvah beyond it because you have to do first the one that came to your attention. Also, a positive commandment overrides a prohibition, and obviously Torah commandments override rabbinic ones, the right to the rabbonon, and whoever is involved already in a mitzvah is exempt from another mitzvah that came, comes up. So there are rules on how to organize priorities in case of conflict when you can't do all of them at once. Now, actually, there are two different approaches to do different situations when we decide how to preference between two mitzvahs that we can't do at once. When there is a need to perform two or more mitzvahs at the same time, and it is to give preference to one mitzvah over the other due to lack of time to do both of them together. So then the dilemma is, who should you, which mitzvah should you perform before another one? But at the end, you will do both mitzvahs, just the order is what we are triaging. But in contrast, there are situations where you can perform only one out of the two or more uh, mitzvahs, but there won't be an ability to perform the other mitzvahs once you performed the one that you preferred. So for instance, if there are not sufficient funds to buy both talis and film, as we said earlier, then f- from the funding that you have, you will buy that film that are mekudashim, more holy, and you will give up buying altogether the next mitzvah, the talis, because you don't have the funds to do it. So these are two separate decisions, and the end results might be different based on the uh, different uh, criteria on how you preference these two types of mitzvahs. Now, let's turn to our situation. What are the life-saving measures in a pandemic, and not only in a pandemic, that might be uh, short of, of access, and therefore you'll have to decide who will get it so that the other one who will come or will be uh, negatively triaged will not get it at all. So we're talking about ICU beds, ventilators, ECMO machines, medications, PPEs, and also, very important, medical personnel. 
there are not always sufficient physicians, nurses, technicians, and so on to take care of so many patients who come at once. And therefore, you'll have to triage because you don't have manpower to treat them. So what is a situation that uh, we need to make such decisions? Uh, so we are talking about sudden, unanticipated mass casualties of varying physical and emotional trauma within a very short time where the healthcare system is limited by the ability to fully treat all of them, either because of lack of uh, equipment or limited personnel. And such situations can occur in various Uh, because of various causes, not necessarily a situation of pandemic. So we know that train accidents or airplane accidents or sometimes even car accidents may create uh, traumatized people in a very large uh, number so that the uh, people who come to save them can't deal with all of them at once. Certainly it may happen in natural disasters such as earthquakes, floods, tsunami, tornadoes, and so on. And in war situation, it happens quite frequently. There's only one medical officer. There is a battalion. There are 15 injured soldiers. He can only treat one at a time. Who should he treat first? Who should he neglect altogether? Who should he defer to treat later? It can be also industrial disasters, such as fires, explosions, and so on. And obviously pandemics, the corona one that we are facing now is not the first one. There were huge pandemics of pestilence, of cholera. We talked about the Spanish influenza, lately the Ebola, AIDS, and other uh, pandemics that caused the life of many people, and not all of them could have been treated at once. So what are the sources, the halachic sources, regarding the question on how to triage? So there are several of them. I won't go over all of them, but I want to preface the discussion with a letter that from Zalman Oyerbach wrote to a colleague of mine, Dr. Shimon Glick, when he asked him about how to triage in halachically in cases of a disaster. And he wrote to him, I can assure you that I am not setting firm guidelines regarding triage questions. They are very grave, and I don't know clear halachic proofs for them. So if Rabshom Zaman Oerbach didn't know clear halachic proofs, certainly people like myself don't know them to be clear. However, it happens, and we need answers, and we need to decide how to treat people in such situations, and therefore we are trying to look into sources in order to uh, adjust the right triage decision halachically. So there is a famous uh, Gemara in Baba Metzia regarding two people walking in the desert. One of them has uh, enough water that he possesses to save himself to get to, uh, to, a, to a, out of the desert. But if he will drink the water, save himself, his fellow man who is walking with him will die of dehydration. 
So what is his obligation to do in such a situation? So Ben Ptura said, it is preferable that both of them drink and die and let neither of them see the death of the other. So although I am the owner of the water, but if I'll drink the full amount of the water and save myself, my fellow will die and I shouldn't do it. So we should divide it. Hopefully we might be saved. And if not, better both of us die than one should survive and see the death of the other. However, Rabbi Kiva taught, and it says, Your life takes precedence over the life of the other, and therefore you should drink the water, and even though, unfortunately, your friend will die. There's a big halachic debate according to whom do we paskin, most paskin paskin according to Rabbi Akiva, but even in the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, The question is, does Rabbi Akiva say that the owner of the water is obligated to drink himself because his pikuach nefesh takes preference over his friend? And if he doesn't do so, he is sort of committing suicide, which is forbidden. Or does Rabbi Akiva teach that you are allowed to drink the water despite the fact that your friend will die, but if you want to behave uh, not according to the law, you want to be better, then you are allowed to divide the water. These are uh, disputes amongst the poskim. However, this source is irrelevant to what we are discussing in modern days. The reason is that in this source, the life-saving measure belongs to one of the people who is in need of the life saving measure. That is almost never the case in modern situations. In our case, in a pandemic situation, when five patients come and there's, there are only two ICU beds, the ICU beds don't belong to either of the five. They belong to the community. They belong to the country. They belong to the hospital. And the question is, someone outside of those in need of the life-saving measures, how does he triage? How does he prioritize? And therefore, Rabbi Akiva is not helpful in this situation because there's no one that you can say that his life takes preference because he owns the life-saving measure. So that is not a, a helpful source. Another source are two Mishnayas in Horayot, One Mishnah says a man precedes a woman, and another Mishnah goes on to say that a Kohen precedes a Levi, a Levi precedes an Israeli, and an Israeli precedes Mamzer, and a Talmud Chochem precedes uh, an Amoris, even if uh, the Talmud Chochem is a Mamzer and the Amoris is a high priest, the Mamzer who is a Talmud Chochem precedes. So it seems like this is a a criterion that we should follow in order to prioritize in cases of life-saving where there is not enough sources. The term used in the Mishnah on all these is lahachayot. Ish kodem leisha lahachayot. Kohen kodem lelevi lahachayot. And the question is, what is the meaning of the term lahachayot? So some say lahachayot means to give parnose. To, to save someone from a starving of death. So in this situation, this Mishnah 
is appropriate. However, most poskim say that lachayot is more than that. Lachayot is actually saving the life of a person. So then it really is in relation to any situation of a pandemic or a mass casualty situation that you need to save and you don't have enough uh, people or enough uh, measures to save and therefore you go according to these priorities. Interestingly, the Rambam, who rules on saving life, the second Mishnah, starting from Kohen, is, precedes Levi and so on, but on a man precedes a woman, he only says that it takes precedence in cases of captive redemption, but not in regular life-saving situation. So why did he divide between the Mishnah of a man precedes a woman and the Mishnah of Kohen precedes a Levi, that is something discussed by the Norsekalim of the Rambam. However, the greatest poskim in our generation and some in previous generations ruled that this Mishnah, this priority described in the Mishnah cannot be applied as such in a simple way. First of all, it is in many of these priorities are very difficult to ascertain. How do you know that the one that you approach amongst the 20 that are injured or, or suffering from the corona disease is a Koyen, is a Levi, is a Mamzer? Do you ask before you start treating who is a Koyen and you start treating him? And if someone says, I'm a Koyen, how do you know that he's a Koyen? Maybe he learned this Mishnah and he knows that the coin has precedence, and he says he's a coin. Do you have time to investigate and to find out whether he's really a coin or not? And whether he is a Talmud Chochem or not, how do you assess that? Do you ask everyone to recite the Mishnah in Orias to see that he really is a Talmud Chochem? Obviously, these are matters that are very difficult to ascertain, and therefore, in practice, they are not used. And both Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Oyerbach in their respective response, Igos Moshe and Minchas Shloimo, they both ruled that it is very difficult to rely on this Mishnah, and in practice, we actually don't rely on it, and we are again left with the question, so how do we prioritize today in case of mass casualties? Another issue that is important and might uh, be of, of relevance, but I think it is not, is the following issue. All these uh, issues of prioritization, including the Mishnah and Horaios and the Sugya and Baba Metzia, uh, are talking about people who are in need to be saved, but they arrive simultaneously. But if they arrive in succession, then the rule, the rule is first come, first serve. So that if someone comes in the morning and he's in need of a life-saving measure and I gave it to him, and now an hour later comes someone else and now I am short of the measure to save his life, then the one that came first, I already started treating him, he takes priority. That is in cases where 
one comes after the other. However, in a pandemic situation, actually we know for sure that even if at the moment only five people came and I have five beds in the ICU, I know for sure that in a minute, in an hour, there will be many more coming because that is a pandemic. We know that there are many, many patients out there that are arriving gradually. So that is regarded as coming simultaneously and not in succession. So the rule in triage is based only on medical factors. The principle is that the first to be treated and to use the measures to save his life is the one that on the one hand is in need of this measure. He can't wait and get the treatment tomorrow. He needs it now. And on the other hand, his situation is such that medically speaking, he has the greatest chance to survive if he gets this treatment. So that if two people come together and one is fit physically, has no underlying diseases, has no complications of the pandemic, of the corona, except for the pneumonia that is going to kill him, his chances to survive if he gets the ICU bed and the ventilator are very high and therefore he takes priority over someone who has underlying diseases, is very old, and based on the medical aspect, even if he gets the treatment, his chances are much lower than the first one. So this is the determining factor. Who has greater chances from a pure medical standpoint to successfully get over the disease if he gets the treatment? So that age in and of itself is not an accepted halachic determination, different than in other countries, including the United States, where age per se, meaning the, the years left to live, even if he survives, are a factor. So that, for instance, if a 20-year-old person comes together with a 60-year-old person and both are in good health, and they can survive if being treated according to some ethicists, the 20-year-old will get preference merely because he has left more years to live if the treatment will be successful. That is halachically unacceptable. Every human being has the full value and every year has the full value and we can't separate the numbers of years and based on that, prefer one over the other. Even in practicality, the 20 year older may go to the army, may drive a car, may drive a truck. He might be engaged in dangerous activities and he might die before the 60 or 70 year old person who is already retired and doesn't do a dangerous acts and he'll have the 10 years left fully, whereas maybe the 20 year older will have much less. But even if we know that there'll be more years, this is not a halachic factor. The same holds true for physical or mental disability per se, that is not a reason to negatively triage a, a patient. 
Now, what are the uh, sources? The sources for this are that if a healthy person and one in danger come together, the healthy person comes first. Obviously, healthy in this uh, terminology is not that he is completely healthy. Then why does he need a treatment altogether? But it means that he has no other medical problems except for the problem that we are going to treat him. And if we treat him, he will recover and be healthy, as opposed to someone who is already in danger, meaning that besides the illness that for, for, for which we are going to treat him, he has other problems, other medical problems that put him in greater danger and therefore his success to recover is lower. Same is a trefa is a, a, a trefa and one who is not a trefa, the one who is not a trefa comes first and again the same concept and a terminal, a non-terminal, the non-terminal comes first. These are all halachic sources and they are all based on pure medical criteria. It doesn't matter if he's a Talmud Chochem or if he's a male or if he's a Kohen. It is a medical criteria. Now, when we come to uh, determine a priority in life-saving situations, especially in a pandemic, we should look into three different stages of the pandemic and the treatment. The first stage is during normal times and during emergencies when there is sufficient life-saving resources and personnel. In this situation, the obligation of the country, of the government, of the medical establishment is to prepare for the event that will run into insufficiency and do whatever we can to be ready so that the situation of insufficiency will be either uh, avoided or at least deferred much longer ahead. And the same holds true for individuals. We all in such a stage are required to uh, keep all the instructions so that we will not get sick and not spread the illness and not cause a situation that will require triage decisions because of shortage. The second stage is when there is already an emergency and already we know that there is insufficient life-saving uh, measures, but we did not yet start a treating. So if an emergency room or an ICU uh, physician are standing at the gate of the hospital and in come 20 people and we have five respirators, we have to make a triage decision who will get this particular treatment. And that we discussed that the criterion will be a medical criterion. There is, however, a later stage of triage, and that is when we know that there are insufficient life-saving resources and the treatment was already initiated, so that in our example, 20 people came, five were chosen by medical criteria to be treated. They come into the ICU, they occupy five ICU beds and five respirators, thinking at the time that they have the best chances to survive and therefore they were prioritized over the other 15 uh, patients who came with them. But one of them is now deteriorating 
although wasn't expected or might have been expected. And now he reaches a stage that his chances are close to zero, but he's still occupying an ICU bed and a respirator. There is a form of triaging even in this stage. Now, halachically, as opposed to uh, the legal situation in, in many countries, including the United States, we are not allowed to withdraw the respirator even from a terminal patient. So if he deteriorates and his chances become very low, but he's still on a respirator, we're not allowed to disconnect him from the respirator and give this respirator to someone else who has greater chances to survive because halachically this is an act of killing. So that even in Western societies who allow withdrawing respirator, they wouldn't allow to directly kill the one that his chances became nil in order to save someone else. But logically, they should allow it because if they allow to disconnect the respirator, which is an act that causes directly the death of the patient, what's the difference between doing this and actually killing the patient? So the fact that they understand that actually killing, even for saving others, is never allowed, halachically, doing an act that causes death is equally never allowed. But we are allowed to reduce the amount of treatment that we are giving to this patient whose chances became very low. So for instance, we're allowed to move him out of the ICU with the respirator to a regular floor where there are many more beds and free the bed of the ICU for someone who has greater chances. We are allowed with, to withhold further treatments from the patient who is dying anyway, meaning not to put him on pressors, not to put him on dialysis, and so he will die sooner, but not because an act that we did. These are quite complicated uh, decisions, which we don't have time to go in details on every of these uh, decisions. So that is as far as uh, triage decisions. Let me now talk about the vaccines. So I won't go into the biology and into the uh, history of vaccines, just to say that vaccination is the most effective method of preventing infectious diseases. Many diseases that caused millions of deaths in the past were either totally eradicated or run down to very few uh, situations that are still existing that cause a small amount of deaths. Smallpox, for instance, after the vaccines came into existence, before the vaccine came into existence, it killed over 300 million people. Today, it is an eradicated illness, and there are zero deaths in the world from smallpox, all because of the vaccine. The same is for polio. Polio killed over a billion people, but today only a few hundreds are dying of polio, and usually in places where uh, hygiene and, and vaccination is very poor. And therefore, it is clear that vaccines in general have saved the lives of millions. Also, 
there was an epidemic of German measles in pregnant women, which is a easy uh, light disease for the pregnant woman, but has grave consequences to the fetus. Nowadays, all women becoming pregnant are vaccinated against German measles, and we actually don't see any more uh, fetal diseases due to German measles. Recently, there was a wave of uh, opposing to vaccinate against measles for some reason, and I won't go into the story of autism, it's, it's a whole big story, but there was a, a small epidemic of measles, and children died again of measles, which already for decades children did not die of measles because they were vaccinated. So it is clear that there's a tremendous and proven benefit uh, to vaccinate against all those vaccinations that are available, especially and only those who are approved by professional regulatory bodies such as the FDA, Ministry of Health, and so on, and accepted by most outstanding experts. So just to mention that when the smallpox vaccination was uh, invented or was found, the Tiferet Israel, in the end of uh, his interpretation on, on Mishnayus Yuma, wrote that it is permissible to give uh, inoculation against smallpox, even though some die of the vaccination as long as we know that contracting smallpox is much more dangerous than the few cases of death due to vaccination. And therefore, it is permissible to put oneself into a small danger, a small risk, a remote risk, in order to save himself from a certain risk. That is, in those days when uh, science was very poor and the uh, validity was very uh, small, and therefore there might have been cases of death. This is not the case in modern vaccinations, and therefore it's not only permissible, but actually obligated. And whoever doesn't follow such an obligation, the Rambam writes in his interpretation in the Perusha Mishnayas on Psochim that someone who is relying that HaKadosh Baruch Hu or nature will save him, despite the fact that the physician can help him with, with medicine or with uh, preventive medicine, is similar to a hungry man who refuses to eat bread and hopes that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will save him from the disease called hunger. Obviously, that is forbidden to rely on such miracles, and one has to do what is right to do. So the uh, new vaccine, and I won't go into the, probably you heard about the messenger RNA uh, vaccine, which was proven to be safe and effective. And I can tell you from Israel's experience, over 5 million uh, people in Israel were vaccinated, more than 3 million already with the second uh, vaccination plus a whole week that passed. And actually, no seriously ill patient due to coronavirus was admitted to any hospital in Israel who was fully vaccinated. 
and no death case do we know in Israel of someone who was vaccinated and contracted the disease. So that is really a major proof of the efficacy of the uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine. In Israel, we use the Pfizer. Soon we might start using the Moderna as well, but at least the Pfizer we know. And I think this uh, laboratory experience is much better than the experiment itself that Pfizer conducted, which was due to this experiment approved by the FDA. So we can uh, confirm that indeed it is a very uh, effective uh, mode of prevention and it is a safe mode of prevention because the side effects and complications are negligible in so many millions of people in Israel and even more so in the world I have the number uh, 123 million doses of the vaccine as of uh, February, beginning of February. So I'm, by now there are many more and there are no reported uh, serious side effects. So I don't want now to go into the arguments of what will happen in the future and, and was it done correctly or not. Suffice it to say that it is clear that it is the only way to save the world from this pandemic. The world all over has tried so many ways to prevent this pandemic by lockdowns, by quarantines, by masks, by distancing, by all kinds of uh, medications. Nothing has stopped the terrible uh, pandemic except for this vaccine, which we see it very effective now in Israel as a whole country, and it is effective in many other countries in regions where it's done appropriately, and therefore that's the only way to stop this pandemic, and therefore it is an obligation, a halachic obligation upon everyone that uh, should vaccinate himself, not only for his own sake to save his life, which is an obligation, but also for the sake of saving others by cutting the uh, train of uh, infection and saving elderly and uh, uh, people with underlying diseases and even healthy people who have been affected by this uh, by this, uh, by the corona, and either died or suffer from serious consequences. Incidentally, in Israel, there were, there's a whole number uh, of pregnant women who contracted the, the virus, became seriously ill. Some of them even died. All of them had to undergo cesarean section at a preemie level. The babies either didn't survive or are prematurely born with the consequences of prematurity. And all these women are women that were not vaccinated. So that it is clear that this is a, a life-saving uh, uh, measure. And therefore, uh, one should uh, approach it and be, uh, and, and be uh, vaccinated. There are interesting halachic questions and also legal questions can we punish someone who refuses 
to be vaccinated, although he can be vaccinated. Medically, there's no reason for him not to be vaccinated. The reason to enforce him to be vaccinated or to punish him if he doesn't want it is because he might cause harm and damage to others. And the society is here to protect others from a danger that can be avoided. But in democratic countries, it seems like uh, it's very unlikely that a criminal uh, level will be uh, accepted to punish someone who refuses to be vaccinated. But on a tort level, it is certainly halachically not only permissible, but actually obligated upon governments to restrict the freedom of people who refuse to be vaccinated when they might be in contact with the public, such as people who manage hotels or restaurants or businesses, theaters, and so on, and especially teachers and nursing schools, and also healthcare providers who refuse to be vaccinated, they may cause damage to their patients, to their fellow uh, people, and therefore they should be excluded from these businesses until they either are vaccinated or recover themselves from the disease. So now as to a priority, the, here the priority is a little different than what we discussed on triage for life-saving uh, situations. And again, it comes because of the two different situations usually. In the first instance of life-saving people who are going to die unless they get the life-saving measure and this is in shortage, the one who gets it will survive, the one who doesn't get it will die. In the vaccine situation, those who are not getting it right away are not in an immediate danger. Obviously, as long as they are not infected, they can go on without being vaccinated. They are in a greater statistical uh, danger that they might contract the virus and they might become very sick and they might die. So the question here is, A, not a direct life-saving situation, and B, it is assumed that there will be enough uh, vaccines to cover everyone, but it will take time until it will come into existence. And therefore, triaging here is just the order who comes first, but the other ones will eventually come in line. And that is what happened in Israel. The decision was to prioritize healthcare providers because A, they are more susceptible to becoming themselves infected and they are doing it out of their goodwill. And B, they are needed in order to save others because this, these are the soldiers of the war against the Corona. Next in line or almost parallel were older than 60 years of age together with people who have a significant underlying disease, they came first online because they are in real danger to die and therefore they should be vaccinated. Third in line were those who are in contact with others like teachers, policemen, or essential business places 
so that they will avoid uh, infecting others. And after we finished with all these groups, or almost finished with them, we opened it to the rest of the population from 16 years and up, because this is what the Pfizer and Moderna experiments were done on. But now we are uh, looking into vaccinating younger children, and we are waiting some results of experiments, whether it's effective and safe to do it for younger children. So this is as far as we uh, discuss a uh, triage of, uh, of vaccines. Now there are some uh, situations that should be looked into it. Uh, what do we do if someone comes online at a time when there is a prioritization for the elderly or for the more sick people and he's a young healthy person by ethical and halachic considerations, he should not jump the line because he is, might cause someone else to lose the vaccination. And if he gets infected, his life will be endangered. So his line should not be skipped. Another issue is uh, if you have a choice of several vaccines at the same time, some are more effective and some are less effective. Obviously, both the government and the individual should, should go, should, should choose the vaccine that is more beneficial. However, if you are in a place where the only available vaccine is a vaccine that has a little less effectiveness, as long as it is approved and safe, then obviously you should take it because it's better than nothing. Now, the question of a recovered corona patient, should he be vaccinated? There are different policies. In Israel at the moment, the policy is that after three months from recovery and on, such a person should get only one booster injection and the assumption is that the, the antibodies that he created due to his illness plus one booster uh, vaccine will be sufficient to keep him as if he took the two vaccines in a person who was never sick before. As I mentioned about the pregnancy, pregnant women should be fully vaccinated. We did it here in Israel, although it wasn't in the original experiment of Pfizer. We so far, Baruch Hashem, didn't find any complications, neither to the mother nor to the fetus, as long as we can tell, because it's a very short period of time. But on the other hand, we know that pregnant women who were not vaccinated got seriously ill and the fetus had to be uh, uh, taken by C-section early and therefore suffering from prematurity complications. And therefore our policy now is to vaccinate pregnant women, preferably from the second trimester and on, but in certain places, even in the first vaccination. Now concerning Shabbos, usually, 
one should not violate Shabbos because you can postpone it by a day or two and it will be okay. It's not an emergency situation. However, if you are in a place where if you won't get your turn that you called for on Shabbos, you will be deferred for a long period of time, that may put you into danger. And therefore, since the injection itself is only an Isur de Rabbonon, or perhaps not even that, because no blood is, is sucked and, and coming out, so there's no Isur Chavola. And, and, and therefore, this per se is not violating Shabbos. The question is getting to the place from your home. That should preferably done by a non-Jewish driver, and if possible, the station where the vaccination is performed should be also done by a non-Jew because it involves uh, writing and, and notifications and so on. And therefore, if it, it's all done by a non-Jew, there's certainly a, a header to do it if postponing it will postpone it for too long. I think I'll stop here because I think my time is over. There are specific halachic issues that came up during the pandemic, whether it has to do with davening. Now we're approaching Pesach. There are questions if you are in quarantine during Pesach, what halachas involve has to do with brismila. How do you perform in these days a bris? And there are many other issues that you can find in, in the book that uh, I just recently published. And uh, if there are questions, I'll be happy to answer those questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Steinberg. That was such an incredible, uh, incredible uh, guided tour of the many, many issues that we face. It is a real honor for us to be hosting you at our medical ethics conference. And it speaks to the passion of our students, that they wanted such an eminent posek, an ethicist, uh, someone who's really on the ground dealing with this uh, to be with us. And we have a few minutes for some questions, and it's really an honor to have you. I know uh, my own family goes way back with Sharetzedek Hospital, maybe known the Glassers, and uh, it's really uh, a great covenant for us to have you here. And, yeah, no uh, call. That's right. So we'll just, we'll just ask a couple of questions if I could. Um, so number one, when thinking about, so in the, in the initial portion of your presentation, you talked a lot about, uh, the different factors that are impacted by a pandemic. So I guess as, as someone who is really involved in shaping public policy and figuring out what to do with the hospital and figuring out what to do with, you know, um, guidance for communities, I guess we are wondering to what degree were emotional, financial, um, considerations taken into account? Are there, were there any steps that were taken or any risks that were taken uh, because of those issues? Did those issues ever um, somehow transcend the medical concerns in any context, or are they just kind of looming in the background as an inevitable um, outcome of this pandemic? Well, I assume you're talking about Israel, uh, because I don't know what influences it has in other countries. But in Israel, it certainly influenced the policymaking. And sometimes it was covered, and sometimes it was even said 
clearly, because economy and hunger and, and breakdown of people emotionally are medical considerations at the end. I mean, they are, they are interpreted or they are called economic, emotional, and so on. But at the end of the day, it can cause to suicide, it can cause to depression. And halachically, mental illness has the same status as far as Bikuach Nefesh is concerned as a physical illness. So you're allowed to desecrate Shabbos for a mental condition. So these are legitimate uh, considerations. Obviously, the question always is, how do you measure it? Is it already at a level that you can call it at least Sofek Pikuach Nefesh or not? And here come pressures. Obviously, if you are uh, in a group that has greater pressure, you can voice your problems in, in a louder way or maybe even threaten the, the policymakers in one way or another. And here in Israel, we are either right after election or right before election, and it always influences the decision of the policymakers. But one thing I think is important to realize, and from Zamlerbach made it a very, very distinct and clear point, that Pikuach Nefesh of Tzibur is different than Pikuach Nefesh of Yochit. The aloha is that Gacheles, Virshus Arabim, you're allowed to distinguish, you're allowed to take off on Shabbos, whereas you're not allowed to do if it's in your own house. And the reason is that in your own house, you can be careful. You can, you can do whatever is needed and not to be injured. But in public, maybe a blind will go by, maybe an elderly person will go by, maybe someone else who who can't notice and you can't put a guard all the time. So the Pikuach Nefesh strength in Tzibur is differently calculated than in Yochit. And therefore, emotional problems for the mass are different than an individual. Economic burdens of the mass may transfer into emotional problems, into physical illness, and many other such considerations. So it is a legitimate consideration. The question always is, are we there already? And that is a matter of assessment. And sometimes it might not be assessed correctly. That's true. Was there ever um, consideration from an ethical perspective with regards to prioritization in terms of people who were more cautious or people who were not cautious? with regard to the pandemic, if two patients arrived and one is in a compromised position because they chose to ignore the recommendations, the other one is in a compromised position despite embracing the recommendations, would that have any uh, halachic or moral um, impact on the decision? Right. It's a very important question because we face it not only in this situation. Let's say there's a car accident on Shabbos and someone is injured. He violated Shabbos with an Isus Kila, so he's a Chayv Misa. Now he's coming to me to the hospital and I have to do many Isurei Shabbos in order to save his life. Should I take into account that he actually is a Chayv Misa and I shouldn't treat him? 
I mean, these questions come up in many circumstances, even from an ethical point of view. If someone is very obese and he could take care of himself and he doesn't, and he comes in with a serious uh, diabetes situation, someone is smoking forever and he comes in with lung cancer, someone is an alcoholist and he comes in with cirrhosis, do we judge him for doing wrong that brought upon himself the pikuach nefesh in order to avoid treating him. So ethically, and I think legally in most countries, it's not a consideration. Once a patient, as a patient, steps into the hospital, he is a patient. It's not my job as a physician to judge him. I, I can't judge him. I don't have the tools to do it. I don't have the authority to do it. And even halachically, Let's say he did not vaccinate himself, therefore he came in. Do I go into the question, why didn't he vaccinate himself? Maybe he's allergic. Maybe he has considerations. Maybe he has fears. I, I can't judge it. So therefore, practically, ethically, and legally speaking, that is not a consideration that we look into at all. Halachically, it might be, in a way, a consideration. It's, it's called Pasha Batsmo. He did something that put himself into danger. So halachically, it might be a, a consideration. But again, who will judge it? How, how, how much time do I have and how much expertise as a physician do I have to judge what he did? Is it really wrong? Is it a cause and effect directly or what? We don't have time to this. And therefore, I think even halachically, we will treat him the same way. Wow. Okay. Um, I think that with the introduction of the vaccine, um, so obviously one of the exciting elements of that uh, progress is the prospect of being able to return to some sense of normalcy in certain circumstances. And, and, and uh, you mentioned, and some of the other presenters mentioned, the distinction between private behavior and public behavior and the need to continue to be vigilant um, in the public space uh, to protect those who are not yet vaccinated or, or remain vulnerable, given all these different uh, elements. At the same time, I think people, uh, especially Pesach is coming, and people are trying to grab on to some, some sense of hope that this has an ending, uh, that there is a day that there'll be an announcement that the pandemic is, for all intents and purposes, over. And we recognize that it's not going to be as simple as a particular moment. But I think what we're all wondering is at what point do the risk levels related to COVID begin to merge with the general risk levels that we take in life for all sorts of behavior um, to the point where we may not have eliminated those risks, but they are now at a manageable, from a halakhic perspective, uh, place that we could then begin to, even in the public space, uh, return to many of the normal things that, that we used to do before. I guess I would just ask, like, what is the process and what is the framework to try to arrive at such a determination? I know that in, in my own shul, I serve as the rub of a shul and people are ready to go. You know, people are vaccinated. They're, they're done. They're ready to have vaccine. They wanted all sorts of things. They, they're ready to abandon a lot of the and we've had to help people understand that we're not at that point yet, uh, but they're beginning to ask. At some point, driving a car is also dangerous. 
So what, what is the, the process of determining when people can feel like, okay, there's some risk, but that's normative risk? Well, medically speaking, the clear answer will be when there will be a herd immunization. When there will be a, a number of people who either recovered and have antibodies or were vaccinated appropriately, two doses of Pfizer and Moderna, maybe one dose of, of Johnson, or, or maybe other vaccines, and enough time passed after they were vaccinated. And people say, experts say, between 85 and 90% of the population in this situation, then we live along with the virus and we come back to total normal life. That is uh, herd immunity that happens with measles and, and with rubella and other, although they are not as deadly as uh, the corona, but still it's manageable and people can live totally normal. Nowhere are we yet at this stage, certainly not in the United States in most uh, places, but even in Israel, we are not there yet. We are talking about maybe 50 or maybe even a little over 50 percent of people who can uh, be regarded as uh, either vaccinated or, or cured or recovered, that is not sufficient to cause it a herd immunity. So therefore, we have to still be careful. Now, how careful do we have to be? My personal view is that as much as you can tolerate to continue the time that was before we feel that the vaccine already done the job is preferable so that you should wear masks everywhere, including outside, but certainly inside. You should keep distancing. You should keep hygiene of your hands, although we don't know that really it goes by hands. But I think we can be more lenient in areas which are called in Israel uh, yellow or, or, uh, or even green, as opposed to red and, and, and uh, purple, uh, in a sense that there are enough people in your neighborhood or in your community that are either vaccinated or recovered. And therefore, you can open the shul with distancing within the shul, maybe capsules with, with plastics to divide uh, groups if it's a big shul. And the numbers are in Israel at least regulated by the government. So at the moment, they allow 50 people in, in a building, in a closed building, and, and 100 people outside. So it's be beginning to open. It's not the full opening, but it's beginning to open. I think that it has to be done very gradually. So if you decided that you let in 20 people to your shul now, give it two weeks, three weeks in this form, if everything goes by, okay, maybe increase to 30 people. And to just to test yourself, if indeed in your environment, you are safe. And I think with this, uh, gradually, Bezrat Hashem uh, will be able to open. Whether it will happen Pesach or not, I'm not sure. Certainly in Israel after Purim, where there was really a disaster. I don't know how Rebbes and, and Rosh Yeshivas allowed uh, what they allowed, but it's beyond me. I, I can't control. And we'll see the consequences within a few days. Usually it's two weeks after such an event. 
if it went by okay, then it's a good sign that a, a big majority is already protected and we can go on. If it will go back, then Pesach will not be an opening. Thank you so much. Uh, Rabbi Starrick, I want to share with you that for us in America, obviously the hardest part of the pandemic has been the loss of life and the suffering of people. Certainly after that, the emotional and the economic impact. Uh, but high up on that list is our inability to reach Eretz Yisrael. And especially for those of us who have family there, but even just uh, feeling like we are, we are locked out of our homeland uh, has really been one of the really, really uh, painful parts of this entire experience. So I really, on behalf of all of us, want to thank you for joining us today. Just to hear your Torah Saretz Yisrael and your, your, your bringing of that flavor uh, to our conference today was very special and very much appreciated. And we want to thank you for everything you continue to do on the behalf of the Jewish people, all the very difficult decisions that rest on your shoulders. And to thank you uh, for joining us today very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, keep on uh, saving yourselves and your neighbors. It's a time to be careful. And Bezat Hashem, we hope that maybe next uh, conference will be already a real conference. We look forward to the next conference in Eretz Yisrael, the next YU Medical Ethics Society conference. Even better. <laughs> That's the plan. That's the plan. Good.